It's as profound a story of repentance and forgiveness as I know. I had known Kevin and his wife Sally for several years. I was their pastor. In a different community, I confirmed their kids. I worked with Kevin on several uh, church projects. I was in Bible studies with uh, Sally. And to say that I knew them well would have been an understatement. And knowing them the way I did or thought I did, from every indication, theirs was a family that, that had it all together. And so I was, I was shocked, of course, more than a year later to find out that, that Kevin and Sally's marriage was crashing and burning. It was actually Sally who called me sometime later to tell me that, that her marriage, as she put it, was, was blowing apart. Kevin had moved out, and they and their entire family were in, in crisis mode. All that they had built over two decades and then some was in this moment imploding, uh, exploding, overloading. It, it was a mess. It was a deeply painful mess. The months that followed course, were filled with the painful unraveling of a marriage fabric that had taken almost 25 years to weave together. And thinking that their kids, Rachel and Corey, by now both in college, were beyond the effects of watching their mom and dad's marriage fall apart was just a pipe dream. Everyone was hurting. Everyone was, was paying a price. And finally, Kevin and Sally divorced. The marriage died, and they buried it. It was done. But that's not the end of this story. A handful of years after that, I, I received a phone call from their daughter, Rachel, and as I listened to Rachel on the phone, there was this tiny hint of new life in the voice that I had remembered hearing painfully talking about all that had gone on in their family. Rachel told me that she had some news. She had some good news to share with me. Kevin, her dad, was getting remarried. There was a pause, and I was grateful for that pause because, because I was needing some time to sort of catch up and absorb all of this news that for them had rolled out rather daily, and I was suddenly in these most important parts of the story. Rachel went on to say that her dad, after all he had been through in those really horrible years, had fallen in love again. Somehow, amazingly, Kevin had allowed himself to love and to be loved again. 
I told Rachel that I, I thought that was great, but I have to admit, sort of just like it sounded when I just said that, it was, it was sort of half-hearted. I mean, I, I was still feeling the real grief and loss because I had more memories. I had more memories of Kevin and Sally together than apart. It had been difficult for me to, to wrap my head and heart around the, the difficult news that Kevin and Sally were, were ending a decades-long relationship. And so another wedding uh, was honestly just, just a little bit beyond what I could, what I could process at that moment. But if, if Kevin was happy and his daughter Rachel was happy, then, then there was some redemption in this story. Then Rachel paused and told me some more news. She told me that her mom, Sally, had also found someone and had fallen in love. And then she asked if I was sitting down. <laughs> and Rachel told me then that her mom was getting remarried as well. Now, full transparency here, I was not sitting down. But at that moment, I did sit down because admittedly, there was a lot going on in this conversation. I stopped for just a moment and I tried to just imagine the dynamics going on in this family as well as, as, as processing my own stuff after having gone through so much with them through the years. And it was one of those rare moments in my life, and I know you're going to find this really delicious, a rare moment in my life when I was nearly speechless. <laughs> what? That was, that was way too much in that. I was, with, I was without words in this moment. Well, Rachel and I talked for a couple more minutes about how happy she was watching her, her dad fall in love again and watching her mom fall in love. And, and then something happened. It was almost like, almost like a little switch went off inside me. And I don't know whether it was something that she said or the way that she said it or the tone of her voice, but I had the growing inclination that Rachel was leaving something out, a key part of this story, that there was more to this story than just a heartbreaking and a heart-mending moment in the history of a family. That's when I asked Rachel this question. Rachel, I asked, is your dad getting remarried to your mom? And is your mom getting remarried to your dad? There was a pause, and then Rachel said, yes. So it was that I drove to Stillwater city on the river one Friday night in the middle of October years ago, and I parked my car in front of an old Victorian bed and breakfast, and I went inside to gather with the family to reunite two people who had waded into the deep waters of repentance and forgiveness 
and ask the question, how many times must I practice repentance and how many times must I practice forgiveness? Only to discover that the answer for them in that moment was simply just one more time. Friends, we're in a series that we're calling Speak. We're acknowledging that God has been speaking since the beginning. God speaks. It's God's nature. God speaks. God speaks creation into existence. Speaks freedom to the captive. Speaks hope and love and accountability to a nation of people. God speaks truth to power. God speaks this truth to power which reorients history and and redeems human lives and restores all things. God speaks resurrection which brings new life to our lives. And God is not finished speaking to us. God speaks into our time, speaks into our stories, into your life, into my life. God speaks using the ancient words of Scripture, the prophets, the unassuming, the unexpected, even the forgotten and marginalized to speak wisdom into our lives to guide us today. And through our series, we've been learning how to speak justice, learning how to speak peace, to speak courage. And today I want us to think about what it means to speak repentance. And because repentance and forgiveness are two halves of a whole, we're going to turn to a powerful story in Matthew's gospel. Jesus' dear friend, Peter comes to Jesus with one of the the best loaded questions any of us have ever dared to ask, ever. Peter asks, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus says to him, not seven times, Peter, but I, I tell you, 70 times seven Here's the whole story. At that point, Peter got up the nerve to ask Jesus, Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. The kingdom of God is like this, Jesus said. It's like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. As he got underway, one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000, and he couldn't pay up. So the king ordered the man, along with his wife and children and all his goods, to be, to be sold, to be incarcerated. Well, the, the poor servant threw himself at the king's feet and begged him, give me a chance, I'll, I'll pay it all back. Well, touched by this plea, the king let him off, erased the debt. The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon a fellow servant who owed him (laughs) 10 bucks. He seized him by the throat and demanded, pay up now. The servant threw himself down and begged, give me a chance, I'll pay it all back. 
but he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested, put in jail until the debt was paid. Now, when the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged and brought this detailed report to the king. And the king summoned the man and said, you evil servant, you're evil. I mean, I forgave you your entire debt and you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked for mercy? The king was furious and had that servant locked up until he could pay back his entire debt. Then Jesus said, that's exactly what my Father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. The word of God for the people of God. That is a gnarly story. That is tough. But that's the story. That's the gospel. There's stuff in this that can set us free. So we get, to, we get to think with our imaginations about this story, to think on what's either side, on, on both ends underneath, because God wants to say something to us through this story. Here's, here's what I know. God has a passion for repentance and forgiveness. Peter was probably looking for an easy way out. I mean, don't we all? Maybe he was thinking that revenge came after the seventh act of forgiveness. Nope, that's it. I'm done. No more. The eighth one, forget it. Maybe Peter thought that after he had expressed forgiveness seven times, he could finally let loose and take to the cleaners whoever it was with whom he was having some issues. But Jesus said, not, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, I'm no math whiz. You all know that. But something tells me that 70 times 7 is roughly 490. So 490 times Peter should forgive. That's a lot. But the next question that we have to deal with, of course, is does that mean that at 491 we don't have to forgive anymore? I mean, is there really a numerical limit to forgiveness? Let me ask you, is there a numerical limit to forgiveness? Of course not. For Jesus, forgiveness is limitless. Jesus is trying to make a point here with large numbers. It's biblical hyperbole. Seventy times seven is meant to, to, to be a number at which we could just, just never arrive. The message of the passage for us as 21st century Christ followers is that repentance and forgiveness are part of God's vision for how we are to live our lives. There are a lot of questions that come out of this passage for us, a lot of questions, but there are three that I just want to lift up. And if we're willing to be honest about the fact that, that we all have conflict, and if we're willing to be honest about our pride and our denial and our need to practice repentance, which paves the way for forgiveness, then I think that we've got something here worth investigating. So here's a question. What if we believe that we don't have anything to repent of? <laughs> what if we believe that we don't have anything to repent of? Not Nothing to repent of, guiltless, blameless. Well, friends, if we're even asking the question, then we, 
we might want to pay attention to why we're asking. (laughs) Thinking that I don't need to practice repentance has never, ever served me well. Ever. All that points to is denial with a healthy dose of pride to go along with it. I mean, think about it. When I've hurt someone and I need to make amends, but I fail to do so, when I, when I fail to practice repentance, all I'm doing is denying the fact that a relationship is broken. And it's usually pride and denial standing in the way. When relationships are, 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 are strained and misunderstandings threaten to pull the whole thing apart, it usually, it usually takes people on every side of the issue to own their part of the problem. Practicing repentance creates a pathway to practice forgiveness. Now, Peter asked a really legitimate question. If someone hurts me, how often should I forgive? That's, that's a legitimate question. That's a responsible question. Should I just keep on taking it forever and ever? Amen. Do I just keep showing up for this abuse? No. No, there are times in our lives when relationships are so toxic and broken that we do need to take ourselves out of that. That does not mean that repentance and forgiveness are not part of our healing internally. It's all held together. Here's the thing. People usually ask something like this. If someone hurts me, what can I do to get back to the, at them? How do I get revenge? Well, here's the thing. If if someone hurts me, even if they haven't expressed repentance, and I take the posture of forgiveness, that's a judo move. That changes everything. Even if someone's not willing to own their stuff, which I have no power over that, I can own my own stuff. And if if I'm open to learning about what this means for me, then that changes everything. That's called subversive love. And you know who's the author of subversive love? Jesus is the author of subversive love. He talked about this all the time. He talked about it when he talked about turning the other cheek. But it's complicated. Raises more questions. Here's another question. What if I believe I can't forgive someone who who has hurt me? What if I believe that I cannot forgive someone who has hurt me? Forgiveness is all about my work. (laughs) Forgiveness is what happens inside me. And denying forgiveness, the possibility of forgiveness from someone who has maybe even asked for it, puts us at the mercy, and not giving it, puts us at the mercy of the destructive power of self-righteousness. When I'm caught up in my own self-righteousness, which I can turn that into an art form, I'm setting myself up for relational pain. If someone has hurt us and asks us forgiveness, but our pride gets in the way and we refuse We are held hostage to a never-ending spiral of destructive behavior. Every Sunday for nearly a decade, members of the Landisville, Pennsylvania Mennonite Church have prayed for a, a son of their congregation. Every month 
for nearly a decade. They've sent him a small sum of money, uh, and every month some of them visited him. Prayer, money, visits, fairly typical examples of congregational caregiving, one might suppose. What's not typical is that nearly a decade before that, after a meal with relatives on a calm Sunday afternoon, 14-year-old Keith Weaver killed his parents and his sister in their home. The unfathomable horror of that crime and the loss of those lives rocked the Weaver's family system, their church, and the community to to the core. But in the middle of their grief and disillusionment, members of the Landisville congregation got busy. They helped clean the house where the murders happened. They established a legal support committee to care for Keith's needs so that the surviving brother and sister would not have to do that. And they founded a 70 times 7 fund to collect money for expenses. They studied grief and forgiveness and victimization in Sunday school and sermons, calling on the expertise of chaplains and counselors in their community. And after a year, a year after the tragedy, they held a memorial service to lament the loss of their loved ones and to recommit themselves to the journey of forgiveness. All these years later, they continue that journey through prayers and financial help and visits to Keith in prison. Their pastor, Sam Thomas, said this, forgiveness is an act of God's grace <laughs> through us. We're just a pipeline. This is, this is what God is doing through us. You don't forgive and forget. You forgive again and again and again. But it's complicated. Here's another question. What if I believe that God cannot forgive me for the things that I have done? Honestly, friends, if if we believe that God is somehow unable to forgive every one of us fully and completely, then no amount of repentance is ever going to get us anywhere. I am amazed at the number of people who truly think that God, even on a very good day, cannot forgive all that they've done on a bad day. There is a widespread belief among many that God is just waiting for us to mess up. And when we do, God is just waiting to squash the life right out of us for being so awful. I've said this a thousand times. If God wanted to do us in for missing the mark and not measuring up, then God could have done that a long time ago, like right around middle school. (laughs) None of us have come this far except by the grace and extravagant, pervasive love of our God who is making all things new. Romans 5, 6 says, you see, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, God sent Christ, and Christ died for the ungodly. The grace of God in Jesus Christ 
reminds us that we are free. We are set free from the bondage of sin and death and brokenness. There are consequences, of course, for every action. But there's nothing we've ever done or will do that is greater than God's ability to love and forgive us. Some stories necessitate, even demand that changes take place. And sometimes moving in opposite directions is the healthiest, most life-giving thing. But God is always about bringing us back to life. Kevin and Sally came to understand that in some profound ways in their life. Kevin and Sally's story is remarkable. Let's give it that much. But I want to be really clear here. It is their story. It is a unique story. Maybe even an odd story, but it is their stories. Not all stories about love lost have a love found part to it. Not all stories about love lost and love found roll out like theirs did. God's pervasive, extravagant love would have covered them completely in any version of their story. For them, repentance and forgiveness made a way for God's story to be seen through them. So I'll never forget it, never, ever. That moment at that bed and breakfast in Stillwater, how Sally, when she took Kevin's hands and spoke her promises to him, again, looked deeply into the eyes of the man to whom she'd been married for over two decades and then spoke some powerful new words of repentance and forgiveness. Their story. And somehow, we all knew All of us who gathered in that space knew, just like now we all know for gathering in this space and hearing this story, we just catch a glimpse of the power of repentance, acknowledging our ability to make a royal mess of everything and the pure joy of forgiveness, a reflection of the extravagant power of God setting things right, helping us to speak new life into the world. And to that, all God's people say, amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you know us and love us, that you are even now creating us to be new people, to live in new ways with one another. Speak your life into us. Speak repentance into us so that we may speak it into the world. And again, all God's people said.